Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but I also am a director of the centre. And today for our review of the film Dungeons and Dragons, Honour Amongst Thieves, I've been joined by um, Toby Saunders, who also happens to be my son, and we went together as a family outing. So laying our cards on the table, I should say that we aren't a family that plays Dungeons and Dragons. Some of us have played it a couple of times, but we're not the real experts. So our review is really from the point of view of different generations coming to see this just as a piece of entertainment in its own right. So first of all, Toby, um, what did you think of the film? What was your expectations going into it? And um, how did you actually enjoy watching it? Let's give the overview first. Yeah, I didn't know 100% what to expect. Uh, I think I thought it was going to be whimsical. I'd seen the trailer and I'd seen the kind of uh, the Albert and that kind of grabbed me. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen any fancy shows recently that kind of go for quirky kind of Terry Pratchett-like elements. So I guess that grabbed me and made me want to watch it. Um, but yeah, I didn't really have that many expectations going into it. Yeah, I think the reason I wanted to go was because originally when I heard about it, there was quite wasn't that much excitement in the in in sort of places I'd seen about it. And then suddenly, just as the interviews started happening, and there was a sort of a rush of people saying, uh, "Yeah, it's actually much better than you think." So I sort of went in the expectation that this is worth seeing. So um, what about the actual structure of it? Um, I should say here that Toby is a, a fellow writer. Uh, he's also studying literature. So he's got a sort of writerly view on this. Um, what did you feel about the structure of the film? Yeah, to me, well, as we've said, we we don't play the game, but it definitely seemed like it followed the kind of structure of a game. Um, in terms of going on a quest together, kind of a hero's journey, you could say. Um, but it's got a kind of, I like the family centre of it, where they have to um, kind of save his daughter or convince his daughter um, that he's good. Yeah, I definitely did follow the the Joseph Campbell hero's journey with the call to adventure. I mean, you could probably map it against that, which you could imagine them using almost ironically, uh, when they're in the writer's room thinking about this, because they know that so many fantasy films use this as a a trope, Um, you know, all the way around to the dark night of the soul where they think it's all gone wrong. You could actually tick off the points 
The downside of that is that it is predictable in the sort of overview, I think. It felt as though I wasn't really um, watching anything that was making any, any new territory in terms of fantasy films. And for me, in terms of pacing, I felt that the start didn't grab me. So there were a couple of good jokes in the start, but before the credits, that sequence, I was thinking, oh, oh, this is a bit of a letdown. I'm not actually going to enjoy this as much as I wanted. And for me, the film picked up once the uh, Edgin, who is the Chris Pine character, once he began to gather his team, for me, the pace and everything got much better at that point. Yeah, I'd agree on that. Um, I thought before then there were some elements that um, grabbed me um, and some of the humour hit, especially with the Jonathan character. I think that character kind of became a fan favourite, even though they only feature in about two scenes, but those scenes enough to kind of grab the audience's hearts, I think. So let's think about the characterization. So we're looking at it, you're uh, in your 20s, I'm not. And so we are a family audience. What did you think about the characterization? Who were your favourite characters? What what appealed to you? Who do you think were the stars amongst the cast? Which is already a quite a starry cast, let's let's be honest. Yeah, I think Hugh Grant was probably, or Forge was probably um, the best. Uh, In some ways, quite predictable. I don't think at any point anyone thought that he was a goodie. Um, but he just played that role perfectly, I think. Yeah, there was a couple of really interesting stock characters, should we say. So he forges the baddie, the the friend who becomes the the bad guy. Uh, and he reminded me in the way he was playing it quite broadly and archly as to how good um, Alan Rickman was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, another thieves film back in the day where he stole the show in a way by how much he was clearly enjoying being the bad guy. And the strong part of um, Hugh Grant's performance is, is that it calls on the other thing he's done, which is play politicians. So he was playing this fantasy character as like this smarmy politician. And it worked very well because he felt you you could feel as though that character could really exist. It's more relatable in a in a way than the evil, evil characters, the red wizards, um, who are another sort of layer of super evil. I felt that calling on his performances in things like um a very English scandal and of course even <laughs> even um uh, Love Actually, where he plays the Prime Minister, calling on those things, you could actually uh, enjoy his range that he has of this sort of, you know, insincere bounder that he does very well. My, yeah, I, my... what... I, was say, I think what you said about tropes there is quite important because um, really the characters are supposed to be types, which, well, well that's what it seems to be in terms of People who play the video game, uh, not video game, the game, can say, oh, I've, I've played that role before. Um, you have the bard figure, you have the wizard, you have the kind of politician, um, you have the warrior, and they all kind of are playing roles, aren't they? Yes, and I think that's my other favourite character, who again is a bit outside the the band, was the one pi- played by 
um, Reggie Jean Page, the Zenk character, who's like a pal- paladin or something, yeah, paladin. Uh, who's like the perfect warrior. And I saw an interview with him. That was one of the reasons for going to see it because he's, you know, he's he's a great actor. He's very funny. But I saw an interview with him um, where he said what he liked about his character was it was as though he had walked in from another storyline where he is the hero and he is on some really super serious spiritual quest where he everything is very perfect and pure and he's this you know he's he's functioning at this level of ideals then he's thrown in amongst this group of thieves and he sort of um passes through their story and passes out the other side he doesn't stay for the whole film and i like that the idea that he had his own Every he's you know every character is the hero hero of their own story, and he was really enjoying being this ideal knight, and sent it up perfectly. He was the straight man for the other people to sort of play off. So I think he was another fun part of it, uh, and not taking himself at all seriously, even though he was, of course, investing in it as if he was. That's where it works. He was playing it straight. There was no wink at the camera. Um, so that was another good part for me. What about um, Chris Pine as Edgin, who of course is the lead in the in the film? Did you enjoy him, uh, his character? I was reading somewhere that there is some idea that maybe recently some of his roles haven't been as big a hit as he had when he started out as Captain Kirk in the reboot of um, Star Trek, because he kind of fizzled a bit and ended up as the support lead in uh, Wonder Woman. Do you think this is a good franchise for him to reboot his career, if he needs it? Well, I think so. I, I think it's a fun role. Um, I don't think he's necessarily... Whilst he's the main actor in it, I don't think he's necessarily the highlight of it. Um, but the role he does play, he plays very well. I thought there were some very funny scenes where he was uh, using his kind of music. And it seems like he enjoyed the role, playing the role. Um and the start as well was very good with him kind of giving his defense and telling his backstory. Um, those were kind of what stood out to me about his performance. Yeah, he's also playing a slightly more mature man. So he has a daughter and he has had a wife and his beard is, you know, slightly silver. So he's moved on from the boyish charm heroes of the young Captain Kirk role to mm. play that kind of mid not middle age but mid age role yeah did i think buy, it, did you buy him in that role because yeah he felt quite young to me well i think so because it's a kind of peasant culture where they probably would have had their families quite young i think that's that's allowable i think the other part about it is he's clearly not the action hero the action happens with other people like zenk and holger and other people uh, and I think that was quite good seeing him playing against type in a way, because uh, so he can pl- play up more on his comedic talents. Mm. So I, I did like that. You know, he, he his um, weapon of war is a loot, which he sort of hits people over the head with. Um, so I, I did enjoy seeing him do that. And I think if it is the first of others, I would go back and watch another one if they did a different enough plot. I think there is one weakness in that the actual family story, which is his driver, 
with wanting to bring his wife back to life again. And she's seen a couple of times in flashback, which is quite cute, but it's also, I've seen that before. And also the thing of there's this magic widget that if you use it, you can bring someone back to life again. Um, Every film, you know, that's a bad idea. It's just like, and you know that probably it's not going to happen because that's the, that's the moment of moral awakening, you know, sort of maturity character arc where they say, actually, no, I will not do this because it's not the right thing. That was all a bit predictable. And the relationship with the daughter, the daughter, um, Chloe uh, Coleman as Kira, she was lovely and fine in her role, but I did feel they didn't give her enough um, suspicion because uh, she wasn't a baby. She was like, uh, you know, what, 10, 12, that kind of age. And she accepts Forge's version of her father and Holger having abandoned her. She wasn't giving any real pushback. And she was given a magical object, which made her invisible. And I was expecting them to use that so that she had some agency. Uh, I thought she was very much given a sort of passive maiden in a tower role. When in fact, these days, it would have been nice to have seen her have a bit more... uh, participation in her own rescue she gets something right towards the in the final sequences but up to that point she's a bit dim really believing forge um and which is a shame it's not the actress's fault at all i think it's just not having the writers not having really developed that younger role um there's lots of characters to develop but i didn't think they did enough with that that character yeah and we didn't really see her interact with anyone in particular I agree that it could have done with more showing her being suspicious of Forge because there are a few scenes that kind of hinted at this. Um, or maybe what could have been interesting is if we if she'd seen the witch and seen her doing something evil and kind of, yeah, she'd gained a sense of something wrong in that way. Yeah, because there was moments when they could have done that. You could also imagine previous drafts where they did that and maybe time reasons they cut it out because they kept it to a sort of, you know, average length movie. They didn't go over, over, over long on it. Um, so on the other female characters, uh, I very much enjoyed uh, Sophia Lillis, who played Doric, who is this, and this is where I think you need to know your Dungeons and Dragon lore. She has this sort of shape changer role um, where she's an owlbear at one point, and then she's a, a worm and she's a, she can change into other animals, but she's rather sweet looking. Um, with her red hair and her little horns. And I like the fact that she was, um, there was a lot of reversal of roles in the Gang of Thieves. So her, the man who was in love with her played a much more sort of the role that you often see young girls play, that sort of passive role where he's trying to court her but not doing very well. And she's the one who's kind of saying, you know, basically you've got to impress me more, mate. Uh, and she can change into this enormous owlbear. So she's got the sort of strength. And the other one who's a sort of obviously big presence in the group is um, Olga, who's uh, Michelle Rodriguez, who is the strong woman um, playing that role. So she's the one who wades in with her axe and uh, has her sort of fondness for small hobbit-like men, which sort of makes the joke of the sort of different races in this world, even more obvious where these giant women have these little guys uh, as their partners. 
Um, so they did quite a lot at trying to change the the standard lineup um, of how the men and female and female roles break down. Did you enjoy the any of those characters? Yeah, like thinking about that, you can think of um, a plot where or a version of that story where some of those characters could have been the main character quite easily. So Doric could have quite easily been the main character. You could have had mm. Simon as the main character, I think. Um, so I think that also leans into the the game aspects of this, because when you are playing the game, I mean, to you, you are the main character. Um, so I think there was that side to it. Um, I definitely agree with that. Yes. And um, just to, the other person we haven't yet talked about is um, Simon, who's the wizard, Justice Smith. Now, he, for me, was the one who most resembles the what you would imagine was the original player of this, i.e. when Dungeons & Dragons first started, it was a sort of late 70s, early 80s board game played by geeks and nerds, That's what, and largely men or boys. Uh, that was its kind of image. Um, and it's done a very good job at reinventing itself, I think. But he does feel like a kind of nerdy guy. Uh, and that was quite sweet to see the original players of the game kind of represented in a fun way. He gets some good powers uh, as as it goes along. Um, so that was I enjoyed that aspect of it. I think yeah, and he definitely felt the most like he was playing a game as the movie went along. Mm. You'd say from his introduction. So before we move on to the sort of standout moments and the tone and special effects that those aspects of it i think that one part of it where again maybe they just didn't have time but i did feel that the red wizards and their agenda didn't really come across to me i was a bit confused about who they were what they were doing and what their what their motivation was other than taking over places and producing armies of the undead maybe that is all i needed to understand but I didn't really find myself understanding them. There was a, um, I, for, I forget the name of the main red wizard who's, uh, Safina, plays by Daisy Head, who's had to have a severe haircut for her part. Um, she looked as though she was quite a tortured soul. And there could have been an interesting backstory there that just wasn't explored. But it seemed as though they didn't really try and explain what the evil was about forge was more much more understandable as well why he's on the, that side of the you know the bad guy i didn't really find anything interesting about the red wizard agenda they just they felt quite alien to me what about you am i missing something yeah i think perhaps they they definitely wanted a evil um character who was kind of unambiguously evil i think um and as they're trying to like turn everyone into zombies, you know, they they felt that part quite quite well. Because um, I guess they don't want to focus too much on the villains; they want to focus it on the team and want you to root for the team. So it seems like it's kind of again leading into tropes. That's probably why they've done it. I mean, I should just accept it's like a dark lord, but red. I think so, That's and and not worry too much about it. Okay, but maybe. I just felt she had more potential because her face looked so expressive of someone who, um, yeah, there was something about her that I felt, oh, you could be interesting, and it never really materialised. Um, anyway, okay, so let's think about the tone of the piece. Um, 
this is what I think probably is why it has hit the right spots for a broader audience than just the Dungeons and Dragons fans in that I think that if you like Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, you will like this film because the tone is similar and um, Chris Pine is not unlike other Chris. Chris, uh, which one? Uh, not Hemsworth. Um, yeah. The other one. Pratt. Thank you. Chris Pratt. <laughs> um, in particular, yeah, the way he sits within the group is a bit similar to Chris Pratt's character in Guardians of the Galaxy. So there is... It's, it's it works as a a sort of buddy movie, um, but there is also elements which I think are drawn from particularly Monty Python and Terry Pratchett. So for me, well, you tell me. I mean, do you, I've got a couple of favourite scenes: um, the fat dragon and the the burial ground. So the fat dragon felt quite Terry Pratchett to me. Yes, uh, yeah, I'd agree. Um, I want to add to those favourite scenes, the one at the start um, where they break out and, and the people shout, we were going to release you. Yes. Yes, that's, that's, so, that's so Monty Python, isn't it? Yeah. And the sequence, it's not plot, spoiling the plot, but um, which we would not do, uh, but the graveyard sequence definitely has um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail elements about it. And you could imagine it becoming the kind of scene that people might do as a skit later on um, because it has this question and answer format, which is very funny. Um, so I thought those were very successful tonally and worked. And the actual ending, the way the treasure is dis redistributed is also was surprised me. It was a clever sleight of hand, which fits with a um, with a thieves movie in that all the elements were foreshadowed, and you could have worked it out, but the way they they were slotted together at the end wasn't exactly what I was expecting, and I like that surprise. They managed to find a way of um, again. I don't want to spoil the plot, but there's a, a cleverness about the way those elements came together. Um, so for me, the less successful parts, I've mentioned a couple already, but I wasn't, didn't think the special effects were that great. I'm sorry, guys who spent a whole year doing these. But so, for example, the, the Hobbity characters, the halflings, they really could have done um, a better job on the perspectives because the Bradley Cooper cameo as Holger's ex-lover he just looked as though he didn't fit. It was his house, and yet he was sitting on an enormous chair. You know, they, were, they hadn't thought this through, I don't think, because um, it was... And having seen so many Lord of the Rings Hobbit movies, technically that's hard to do, but it can be done. I just thought the perspectives there looked all kind of strange and um, looked... Poorly executed. I don't know. Did you did you like that? I think there are a couple of scenes where that was the case. I didn't mind it too much because ultimately, like when you're watching something that well, I'm willing to you know, suspend my disbelief and just kind of enjoy the whimsical aspect of it. I thought another scene that might be similar to that is 
the scene uh, to the helmet and put on the helmet seemed a bit, I don't know, the, the CG seemed a bit strange in that to me as well. And didn't they forget about it as well? Well, they didn't, yeah, I don't think they seem to use it that much in the end. Um, yeah, so the big quest to find this widget then was used once and then, pff, yeah, that was, it was something a little bit under underdone about that, I felt. Mm. What about the landscapes and the, the sort of world building aspect of it, aside from the special effects? Because, you know, the Fat Dragon was a good special effect. Those mm. sorts of things were fine. And I'm sure there was a lot I didn't notice because you just take them for granted. But there was also a lot of external outdoors filming. It wasn't all studio work. Did you like the locations? Yeah, and I thought it was fun how they used kind of all terrains. I mean, they went from kind of an ice biome to volcanoes to kind of conventional fantasy cities, kind of conventional fantasy villages. So, you know, it, it did a good job, but I think it's showing the richness of the world. Um, and it did feel a bit like you're walking around in an open world video game, which I think suits the movie very well. Yeah, and I looked at the sort of uh, places they'd, they'd filmed, and there's, of course, the inevitable Iceland. But also I did at some moments think this feels very much like they're in the UK. And sure enough, some of the film, some of the location shots were, I think, in the UK, which was nice because it had that, not too spectacular, but realistic feel when they were riding along a, a river valley. Um, not everywhere has to look like um, the Alps or New Zealand. So there were some places where it felt more like, yes, people can live in this, communities can live here. Mm. Yeah. So what's your verdict? If you're thinking about giving it a star rating out of five, where would you go? I'd give it, are we allowed half stars? I think so. I'll give it a somewhere between a three and a half and a four. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'd say I'd probably distinguish different things. I would say that a lot of it was a four, you know, a very enjoyable evening. And, mm. um, but I'd sort of say three for the actual story because there were some elements which weren't brilliantly executed. Mm. Um, went up to the it wasn't consistently of a sort of really snappy standard there could have been um, and some failures to develop certain characters so sort of a three for the kind of script and screenwriting which is pretty good but still not amazing mm. um, whereas actually I enjoyed it at about the level of a four star because I just felt ready to enjoy it um, yeah I think potentially what I'd say is I'd give it a four but then it's quite. It's a success that I think is quite hard to repeat. There's almost kind of one off. Um, I bet they'll try and make another. Well, they probably will, but it'll be interesting to see if it captures the same um, kind of tone or success or if it's kind of a one-off thing that works. Because at the same time, I don't think I'd necessarily watch it. I don't think it's repeatable because a lot of the jokes work once, but they don't necessarily work over and over again. But I don't know. I'd have to see it again. I think they'd have to do something quite different. I wouldn't want to watch another. They'd have to really rethink the formula. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of plot and game playing within Dungeons and Dragons that they can draw on because there's decades of um, people writing the this, the adventures and the experience of leading these games. Um, but they would have to shift 
quite a way for me to go and watch a second one. Definitely. So just thinking um, a little bit more about the trend at the moment for turning things which exist as a video game or um, a ride or a toy into films. Um, what do you and your generation think is the product that has been best treated in that way and the one that needs to be treated? So to give you an example, the biggest opening this weekend was the Mario game, um, which actually has Chris Pratt in, doesn't it? Talking about the Chris's. Mm. Um, and clearly there's been a massive audience for that, even though critically it wasn't particularly well reviewed. And earlier, just after you were born, in fact, there was the um, parts of the Caribbean franchise, which wasn't supposed to work. That was a film based on a failing or tired Disney World or Disneyland ride, uh, which was given a reboot by a pirate film and pirate films were supposed to no longer, you know, be very out of fashion, but yet they turned out to be a great idea. So is there anything you think um, has been well treated as a property and what would you like to see treated to a film, uh, a film, film work working out of it? Yeah. Um, well, it's also worth mentioning at this point that there was a Dungeons and Dragons film before that did absolutely horrifically at the box office, I think in the early 2000s as well. Um, so, yeah, that's an early failure, I guess. But one thing that I think has been done really well in recent years is the Arcane series, which is on Netflix, um, which is based off the League of Legends video game. And I haven't played League of Legends. I kind of am familiar with how the game works and what it looks like. Um, but I have watched Arcane and I really enjoyed it. And I think a lot of people were surprised by it, um, how how kind of well it was done. And it's an animated show rather than live action. Um, but it does really well. At, right, it's, it's much more serious in tone than the Dungeons and Dragons movie, um, but it does the serious tone really well. And I'm pretty sure that was made by the video game studio and kind of given to Netflix as a place to distribute it rather than made by netflix um so that's a one that i think has been done really well um i'm interested also as these films are coming out there's also another film with um taron edgerton uh called tetris which takes a different approach to revisiting the early days of video games tetris was one of the very very early console games back in this of time um and what they've done there is tell almost like the biographical story around it uh, about a, a trip that taron edgerton character takes to russia where this was coded and so it's more in the line of a um a sort of social network or a thriller even so it's about the people behind the game rather than trying to be inside the game because obviously the te Tetris is actually a very simple computer concept. There's not much story there. It's like trying to make story out of a game of badminton, you know, it doesn't work. So that's another interesting approach is to do the, the story behind um, the cre creators. And I could imagine an interesting film made about the people who came up with Dungeons and Dragons. It could almost be a, a teen friends movie could be quite comedy 
But I would actually be quite interested to find out about that, uh, how it actually came about and how it grew to be this massive thing with the conventions and websites and all the rest of it. First, mm-hmm. I'm looking for the human story. Movie. Yeah, I, I don't know what the story is. I'd have to find out. Maybe they all love each other and there's no story there because there's no conflict. Mm-hmm. But were there rival groups split away? I mean, I just don't know. So for me, that would be something I'd be quite interested in seeing explored, more so than another version of this film, you know, Mark II, uh, because it, it is has become such a big part of a, a certain slice of culture. And it's also linked, because I'm interested in Tolkien, it's also linked to the whole way Tolkien has been received uh, by later generations, because it's mixed up with these games that sort of are riffs on ideas that came out in his world originally yeah well i know that there's um uh in terms of recent adaptations a recent one was uh there was a halo adaptation on i believe paramount plus which was received quite negatively by fans of the halo games franchise because the way they adapted it i haven't seen it but apparently the way they adapted it um isn't very loyal to the source material um and there's so much good material in terms of music from the original games and also plot lines, which they haven't used and have moved away from in an attempt to make something original. So I think you'll increasingly see this kind of preference amongst this kind of super fans for material, which is loyal to the material that they like, the games. Um, and there's kind of a tension there between what the fans want and what the studios believe that casual viewers will want. Yeah, and also probably quite a lot of the studio execs, <clears throat> because they've got full-on um, studio execs role, are not going to be aware of what it's like to play any of these games. Yeah, and that's why it's really important that for the showrunners that you get someone involved who is very familiar with it, and they kind of have to be a fan, I think, to do it successfully. Yeah, I think this has that feeling that the people love the source material, I've mentioned yeah. it a couple of times on this podcast, but for me, the best of all these films about something else is Galaxy Quest because it's a loving sort of joke about Star Trek. Uh, the tone is just perfect all the way through. It does hits. It's a good film in itself, but it hits all the right sort of fan moments too. Mm. And so now when I watch Star Trek, I'm often thinking of Galaxy Quest. Um, and I don't know if... Presumably for fans uh, of the game, they were ticking off their Easter eggs as they went through um, of things which they, and they're probably an extra layer of jokes which passed me by because I don't play the game. Um, Thank you, Toby. That's very helpful helping me think about this. So if you haven't yet seen the film, I would say it's worth going to see. It's fun. It's not going to possibly, not possibly going to change your world, but you'll certainly probably laugh. Uh, A popcorn movie that all the family can watch. So, that's that's not bad and we always end with a segment about where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something we have mentioned dragons a bit um but i've never actually thought where is the best place for a dungeon so in all the fantasy worlds and i know you're a massive fantasy uh reader where would you think is the best best dungeon you could do it from the perspective of the person caught in it or the person actually controlling the da- the dungeon. Yeah, is this the dungeons that I know of in books I've read? Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, there's there's a book um, that I haven't read, but I really want to read. Um, 
called, I think, Senlin Ascends. And in this book, you've got this person who enters this tower with multiple floors. Um, and I think he enters in pursuit of his wife, who's kind of trapped in a, it's kind of a form of dungeon. So I think towers um, with kind of multiple layers, I just enjoy the progression that that has. So I would say, yeah, maybe a tower, um, which your hero can kind of climb up and find all sorts of things along the way. Yeah, that reminds me a bit of that Doctor Who episode um, with Peter Capaldi, one of the best ones in his reign as Doctor Who, where he had to keep, it was like a tower puzzle that he had to get mm. through. Um, it was one of the cleverest in that period with him as Doctor Who. For me, I would say that the best use of a dungeon that I've come across is in um, a book by Maria V. Schneider called Poison Study. And it starts with the heroine of the tale in what she thinks is the condemned cell. And it's the and you get a very strong evocation of the the deprivation of a dungeon and uh how her life has become this sort of um just very narrow and she thinks she's walking to her death. But it's the start of a longer novel, it doesn't turn mm. out that it's the end. And and I'm very interested in the way. Uh, that book then opens out from this dungeon. So, yeah, Mary V. Schneider, Poison Study. That's an excellent dungeon in fantasy. Actually, if I can have another one, um, there's a book called, well, there's a series called Lightbringer by Brent Weeks. And that has a very inventive dungeon in it in terms of what it does with magic. He's got a very intricate magic system, which is based off the light spectrum and colors of light. And it's very fun how he plays with that in that dungeon, which a character is trapped in. So that would be from a pure kind of magical fantasy point of view, hard magic systems. That's a very fun dungeon. That's a, I haven't read that one. That looks, that sounds great. And, and the very final thing we do is give a fantasy tip. It could be something you've read, something you've watched that um, listeners to the podcast might like to check out. Have you got anything you'd like to suggest? Yes. Well, recently I just finished binging Shadow and Bone, the Netflix show. Um, which I'd describe as a very kind of fun YA fantasy show, um, which has an enjoyable magic system. They've got kind of a crew called uh, the Crows who kind of uh, exist in this kind of Dickensian city and they do all sorts of odd jobs and kind of thievery. And they're very fun and their dynamic is pretty, pretty fun. So that would be my recommendation as a kind of fun, slightly light fancy watch on TV. Excellent. Um, so I've just been to Bath uh, for a day out and um, Bath itself is obviously more, more obviously associated with people like Jane Austen, but Garth Nix has just published a book about the booksellers of Bath, which follows on from the left-handed booksellers of London. So he's doing this fantasy series about booksellers. Um and so I just want to recommend that because Garth Nix, who I've met first in when he wrote his Sabriel uh, A Porson trilogy, uh, which is a great YA series, he's now come back with these bookseller, fantasy bookseller series. So that's something you might want to check out. And even better if you can buy a copy of it in Bath and read it in Bath um, in amazing surroundings. So that's my tip. Thank you so much, Toby. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. 
brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.